0: Hello and welcome to I Know Dino, the, the big, big dinosaur, dinosaur podcast. podcast, where we cover news, interviews, and discussions of all things dinosaur.
1: Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. You can get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash I Know Dino. They have over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone. Android device, Kindle, or MP3 player. This week, we have an interview with Dr. Dave Vericchio from Montana State University, and it's mostly about dinosaur eggs and dinosaur mating, although we talk about a few other things too. Our dinosaur of the day is Raptorix. We have a bunch of news, and if you like what you hear and you'd like to support us, please go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash inodino, and you can Give us a monthly donation to help us keep this going. I just bought a couple more pieces of equipment. We got a couple microphone tube amps to try to reduce some of the static a little bit more and stuff like that. And then we have hosting fees and things. So every little bit of support helps. And there are different rewards. If you come in at the $10 level or more, we edit out all the stuff like this and ads (laughs) (laughs) so that it's a little shorter and cleaner. And once we reach $200 a month of donations, we're going to send out stickers to everybody. We're just getting the proof of the new sticker that has some extra stuff on it that looks really cool. So if you want to get in on that before we send them out, go to patreon.com slash Dino.
0: And now for the news, a woman in Australia was collecting shells on the beach when she found dinosaur footprints, and she was at Cable Beach in Western Australia in the town Broome. Which is known for dinosaur footprints on its coastline that are 130 million years old. Cable Beach is a touristy area, and the woman, Bindi Lee Porth, found six footprints that probably came from two different dinosaurs. And according to Steve Salisbury, a paleontologist from the University of Queensland, he said that these footprints were actually found by indigenous people years earlier. Quote, The indigenous community knew they were there for thousands of years, but it's Great Bindi noticed they had reemerged because we weren't aware they could be seen again. The coast is a very dynamic environment. If you spend any time in that area, you will see the beaches change dramatically, End quote. So that's pretty cool and how it's been discovered and rediscovered. And now they've got some paleontologists out there studying it.
1: Yeah, it's nice that they rediscovered them before they went away. Because we hear about finds at places like the Bay of Fundy in Canada where they're getting pummeled by big tides and things like that. And before you know it, they get washed away or worn down and they're no longer really scientifically useful or even easy to see. Speaking of dinosaur footprints south of the equator, there are some new dinosaur footprints that are going on display in the War Memorial Library in Lower Hutt, New Zealand. Apparently, it's the first evidence of dinosaurs from New Zealand's South Island, although there have been a few discoveries from the North Island. And if you're familiar with New Zealand, you know what we're talking about. The footprints were found a few years ago, and they're estimated to be about 70 million years old and were probably made by sauropods. The scientists who discovered them went through a few processes of elimination to try to make sure that they were dinosaur prints. And they found at least six sites along 10 kilometers of coastline near Nelson on South Island where these footprints were located. The footprints will be on display until October 2nd, and on Tuesday, September 20th, Dr. Greg Brown will be there to answer questions about them, and he's the one who discovered them, so it's a good person to talk to. And on Tuesday, September 27th, they're going to have a stop-go animation workshop with dinosaurs for ages 13 to 18. That sounds sounds
0: really cool. Yeah,
1: I would love to do that, even though we're way too old. Um, You're
0: never too old.
1: Well, according to them, you have to be ages 13 to 18.
0: Well, I guess.
1: Yeah. They said to make sure to register in advance on the Hutt City Library website if you're interested, so you should go there soon. And there are also upcoming movies and a dinosaur design competition at other local libraries this month if you can't make it to the War Memorial Library. So they're really taking the whole dinosaur thing by storm right now. It Sounds cool.
0: Definitely. The so next, Daily Dot wrote about artist Woon Young Jung who has created this beautiful, colorful, happy world where teen witches compete in sports with dinosaurs. (laughs) And we've shared this on Facebook and I know a lot of you have been enjoying looking at those images. Each painting shows different dinosaurs doing different sports. So, there's one of a triceratops running track against the teens. There's another with an Ankylosaurus, Pachycephalosaurus and Hadrosaur playing soccer. There's a one with a Triceratops and Hadrosaur doing yoga, and there's also one of a pair of Brachiosauruses holding a pole vault bar. It says something like the tallest pole vault in the world or something. Mm-hmm. And Jung was inspired by a drawing that he did in high school of a ninja riding a dinosaur. And he told the Daily Dot that he likes pairing the right dinosaurs to each sport to show the most contrast. Quote, for example, I drew a running track scene with Triceratops because they seem very stiff and almost too massive to run. I hope this would create a witty situation, End quote. And they definitely do. He's gotten a ton of traction on his Tumblr page. So we'll post a link on our blog so you can see for yourself.
1: Yeah, that sounds cool. I like that he acknowledges that a lot of it's goofy, because when you were saying Ankylosaurus playing soccer, I was thinking it would be a pretty awful soccer player.
0: Probably pierce the soccer ball.
1: Yeah, and they'd just be so slow. If it was on defense, you could just go around them so easily. And if it was on offense, I don't know, maybe it could camp out for like a good slap shot style hit with its tail or something. Mm -hmm. But Yeah. It's pretty funny. You can make
0: a goal from all the way across the field. (laughs) That's
1: true. (laughs) With its tail. Yeah.
0: So there's a lot of cool art stuff going around this week. According to Mashable, the artist Brett Kern sculpts clay dinosaurs that look like balloons. And I loved looking at these pictures. So the idea, according to his website, is to fossilize the movies, TV shows, toys, and games from his youth with his artwork. And some of the sculptures he makes by hand, others are casts from actual inflatables. And he sells his art on Etsy. And right now you can order a T-Rex for $600, a Stegosaurus for $800, or a Brontosaurus for $800. And they really do look like inflatable loons. They're shiny and everything.
1: Yeah, when I saw those pictures and it said inflatable balloons are actually made out of clay, I didn't believe it. And I went to the link just to make sure it wasn't some clickbaity nonsense and even after looking at the pictures, I couldn't find a single one that didn't look like it was an actual inflatable. So they're super well done.
0: Yeah, I'd love to see one up close.
1: Yeah, they're really cool.
0: Next, according to Telegraph, game developer Platonic Games is working on an open world 3D platformer called Ukulele, but spelled differently. It's Y O O K A L A Y L E E. It's actually the names of the two characters, the main characters. Mm. So the game's similar to Banjo-Kazooie, if you remember that game at all. Those are two characters, and although sometimes you could join them and they go on this adventure together. And this game is made by some of the same designers as Banjo-Kazooie.
1: I loved Banjo-Kazooie. Me too. Especially when you were the bird carrying the bear on your back. Yeah. And I was like huffing and puffing. That was my favorite part. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: So the main characters in this game are Yuka, a chameleon, and Laylee, a bat. But there will also be a polygonal dinosaur character called Rextro 64us, <laughs> which will guard a playable retro arcade machine hidden in each level. And that
1: character looks pretty cute. We're going to have to get that game. Mm-hmm. That sounds really fun.
0: I don't think it comes out until next year.
1: I hope it's on PC.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure of the details. They did have a Kickstarter a while back, and apparently Rextro 64 was something they kind of had like in their back pocket to drive the Kickstarter, but then they were funded immediately, so they kind of released news about them later. Hmm. Or if not, Rextro, maybe something else. I can't remember the details. So next, Prince William and Princess Kate were on a tour to Cornwall, England, and they had to make a slight change of plans when weather forced their helicopter to be grounded, They ended up visiting the Eden Project in Cornwall. And the Eden Project, actually, there's one of our Twitter followers, Chris. Thank you, Chris, has been tweeting us some awesome quotes and pictures and links of the Eden Project. And it is an educational charity. It has the world's largest undercover tropical rainforest, according to ABC News. So at the Eden Project, the prince and princess, they were greeted by a baby dinosaur from the Dinosaur Uprising Exhibit. And there's a few pictures of them petting the dinosaur, which I believe is of a baby Mutaburosaurus.
1: Cool. I think that's the same people that are planning on making Jurassica, if I'm not mistaken. Although I'm not sure how well that's going. I know they were waiting for some permit approvals and things like that. Sounds cool, though.
0: Yeah. The dinosaur uprising exhibit sounds awesome.
1: Yeah. Next up, a listener on Facebook sent us... A Note to Watch, Milwaukee Blacksmith, which I had never heard of even though I was born in Milwaukee.
0: <laughs> it just started this summer.
1: Oh, okay. It's a pretty interesting show. It's kind of in the format of one of those like Orange County choppers or whatever where it's a family making things out of metal. And it's
0: it's basically... This blacksmith and the episodes that we saw was four of his children, three sons and a daughter, uh, all in their late teens, early 20s. And they're kind of learning the trade so that eventually they can take over the business. And they all work on these projects together.
1: Yeah. And they said a lot of the projects are stuff like railings and things like that. That's what people want to pay money for, I guess. And half of the first episode we watched was a railing. And then the other half was making a big steel T-Rex for a museum in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And they were going to get paid $25,000 for it. So they were going through all the details of how they were going to make it and make sure that it could stand upright. And they were running into the problem of, well, if you put too much weight on the legs, it's going to like collapse the structure because it doesn't have the muscles and tendons in it that would normally hold it together. So, it was really fun to watch. At first, I wasn't sure because it's a reality show and I'm not usually big on them, but with the dinosaur aspect of it, it was really cool at seeing how they put the whole thing together and the complications and how they solved the problems. It was neat.
0: Yeah, so if you want to check it out, it's on the History Channel. You can go online and the episodes with the steel T-Rex are Tour de Forge and Jurassic Spark.
1: Yeah, we only recorded the first one, and then there was a to-be-continued, and we're like, ah, so we went online to get the second one.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was very fun, so thanks to our listener who told us about it.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was definitely worth watching, and now we might have to go to Kenosha to check out that dinosaur place, as well as the Milwaukee Museum. Mm -hmm. So it's been a little while since I talked about the VR dinosaur stuff that's going on, but I just got back to Dinosaur Island working, which is kind of like a little demo, short video, but you're actually in it because it's using the game engine to generate all the dinosaurs and scenery around you. And I got it working from some code on GitHub that I'll post in case you have an Oculus Rift and haven't gotten it working. I don't know what the odds of that are, but that was my problem, so it's worth knowing. And it's really fun to play. In the first version, you're in a dinosaur nest, with eggs all around you. And the first thing that happens is a dragonfly tries to hit you.
0: I don't like that part.
1: And (laughs) while Sabrina was playing this, she spent the whole time staring down into the middle of the nest.
0: It just felt very real. And I hate when bugs are buzzing in my ear. And this one felt like it was in my ear. Yeah,
1: with the the headphones, it's just buzzing all over your head. Mm -hmm. And then you're supposed to dodge it. But since Sabrina was just staring down, I think it just kept ramming into her. So, yeah, she was a little panicky. (laughs) And then eventually, what I think is supposed to be a T-Rex marches over to you and starts smelling you because you're in this nest.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And it's a little bit unclear whether you're in there for the babies to eat when they hatch or if you're an already hatched baby T-Rex.
0: I think you're there to be eaten.
1: That's kind of what it seemed like because at the end, the eggs around you hatch and then they... You know, there's like squealy kind of noises. Sabrina was very panicky about this. I don't, I think the most of the T Rex that you saw was like the bottom of the chin and then you like yelped and looked back down. That was again.
0: enough. <laughs> it was there to eat me.
1: Yeah. And I thought that that one was the tamer one because the second game is a little bit more interactive. So basically, I guess there's a little bit of a story to this one. There's a spaceship or something that has crash landed in this other world of some sort and then there's a bunch of grappling hooks that are going up the side of a cliff and it's made by the same people that made the game the climb where you're rock climbing in vr and basically you grab onto these two handles that are on grappling hook wires and it slowly pulls you up the side of the cliff but there are pterosaurs all over the place kind of dive bombing at you and Sabrina got sort of close to the very first pterosaur and then freaked out and couldn't play it anymore.
0: Well, I'm also afraid of heights, so then the pterosaur's <laughs> coming for me and I'm trying to look away, but then you look down and then it's you just sheer cliff. And
1: Yeah, so if you looked up or to either side, there are pterosaurs, but then if you look down, it's actually really pretty below you, so I was trying to convince Sabrina to look down because there's a bunch of water and it's like all Jurassic looking with lots of plant life. All I
0: saw was the drop.
1: (laughs) Yeah. You didn't even look all the way down either. Didn't have to. You're probably...
0: Palms got sweaty. Yeah. Started feeling nervous.
1: You're probably about 500 feet, maybe 1,000 feet above the ground in the game. But it looks really cool. I thought it was beautiful. And then along the cliff, there's also all sorts of little flowers and plants and things that look pretty and are interesting or terrifying, depending on who you are. (laughs) And then once you grapple all the way up after going by a nest where the pterosaurs are really freaking out at you, and then there's a big one at the top that really doesn't like you either, you can stand on the top of the cliff, and there's a really pretty scene around you, including what looks kind of like a Camarasaurus right in front of you. But unfortunately, even though there's lots of cool stuff in the distance, including other dinosaurs running around... You can't move around or do anything once you reach the top of the cliff. But since the game is free and you can play them now, even if you don't have the developer's kit edition of the Oculus Rift, it's definitely worth playing, and I recommend it to everybody. What do you think, Sabrina? I don't know. Maybe not to everybody. I recommend it to everybody who doesn't get all panicky with VR. (laughs) (laughs) And then the last piece of VR news is... Available both on Rift and Google Cardboard, and I think just about every kind of VR because they released it through the Jaunt program, which I think is pretty much on every VR platform that's around. And it's a video about Dreadnoughtus that's narrated by Dr. Ken Lacavara. It starts at Drexel's Academy of Natural Sciences where Lacavera gives some background about his find. And Sabrina said, oh, this is more my speed Yep. when we looked at it. But then there's like a model of a dinosaur. And when we were in the museum for real with the model right there, she was totally fine with it because it's just a carnivorous model. But in VR, it was freaking her it out looks, <laughs> a little bit.
0: It looks like it's going to come after me in VR for some reason. And it was glowing a little bit.
1: I guess you were traumatized. They highlighted it so they knew what you were talking about.
0: Yeah i didn't need that
1: <laughs> after a little bit of background it transports you to patagonia near where the fossil was found and then it shows you all the bones in 3d around you which sabrina also didn't like because it was
0: fine until the femur was coming for
1: me <laughs> all coming for you. <laughs> <laughs> and eventually they combine all the fossils into the dreadnoughtus and then it walks around you in a big circle and it plays videos around you too so you kind of like spin in a circle i really like that
0: the dreadnought is too big to want to deal with me so i can just look at
1: it (laughs) from a distance
0: (laughs) or even it got somewhat close but it didn't well but close enough (laughs) and it it wasn't even trying to look at me because it didn't even notice me
1: it's probably like a hundred feet away but anyway it's really cool my favorite part was that after The Dreadnoughtus kind of marches around you and they show what it looks like with its muscles and then with its skin on. They put the Dreadnoughtus on half of a balance and other animals and objects on the other side for comparison. And it's a really good way to visualize just how large Dreadnoughtus is, especially compared to other things that you might have seen in person. It's definitely worth checking out. If you don't have Google Cardboard but you have an Android phone, and I think Google Cardboard is on one of the iPhones now, if I'm not mistaken. But in any event, it's pretty easily accessible. Most Android phones can do Google Cardboard. You just have to buy a Google Cardboard thing, which is kind of like a little view master that you self-assemble with some simple lenses in it. And I think they're only like 10 or 15 bucks. So I would recommend it. There's lots of cool stuff to watch in it. And YouTube has a bunch of new stuff, too.
0: Yep, I enjoyed that one. <laughs>
1: And the Saurian game results for the backer-selected dinosaur are in, so now in addition to the T-Rex, Triceratops, Raptor, and Pachycephalosaurus, there will be future additions of the Ankylosaurus and Anzu Wiley. Apparently, it was a little bit of a runaway with those two winning. Ankylosaurus got about 50% of the vote in a three-way race, Between Ankylosaurus, Anatotitan, Anatosaurus, Edmontosaurus, whatever you want to call it, and Denverosaurus. And it sounds like the game developers and a lot of the fans wanted Anatosaurus slash Edmontosaurus to win, but Ankylosaurus won. And I'm very happy about that since it's my favorite dinosaur. (laughs) Even though I realize that playing as Ankylosaurus probably won't be quite as fun as.
0: This one won't be able to play soccer.
1: It won't be able to do much. (laughs) I don't really know what it'll be like, but I really want to be able to swing that huge tail and hit stuff. That's really the whole goal there. And Anzu Wiley won in a pretty big landslide with two-thirds of the vote compared to Ornithomimus with only one-third of the vote.
0: Yeah, that makes sense.
1: Yeah. And they only called it an Ornithomimid. I don't even know if they named a specific Ornithomimid. So. It doesn't sound quite as compelling. And Anzu Wiley's supposed to be able to mimic calls of other dinosaurs to mess with them, which sounds like a lot of fun. But the Denverosaurus, Edmontosaurus, and Ornithomimid that didn't win are still going to be in the game. They're just going to be in there as AI things. So you'll be able to chase around herds of Edmontosaurus as a T-Rex, which I'm excited about.
0: Sounds cool.
1: Yeah. And eventually that'll be in VR, too, Hmm. which will be awesome. Hmm. I don't think you're going to want to play it in VR.
0: I don't think so either.
1: I think even if you were playing as a T-Rex, you might be scared just by what you were.
0: Probably. (laughs) (laughs) I could see that.
1: (laughs) That's funny. So now we're going to jump into our interview with Dr. Dave Vericchio who is a paleontologist at Montana State University in Bozeman, Montana, where he both teaches and does research. He has found new information about Trudon, and he's one of the world's leading experts on dinosaur reproduction, which is why we really wanted to talk to him. And Sabrina's going to jump in halfway through the interview, so don't get startled when she pops in out of nowhere. (laughs) So the first question we always ask is, do you have a favorite dinosaur?
2: I feel it should be Troodon since I worked on Troodon so much. So I do say it's Troodon. I have Troodon on my license plate on my car.
1: That's a pretty strong statement if you have a (laughs) specific license plate.
2: And I feel like I know Troodon well in the sense that I feel like I've done a bunch of different stuff that's involved Troodon. So it's sort of the animal I know best. You know, it's more I'm familiar with it rather than it's the world's best dinosaur is kind of how I look at it.
1: Gotcha. Cool. Speaking of Troodon... I never know how to say it. I hear Troodon. I also hear Troodon, but I'll go with Troodon since that's what you're saying. <laughs> what all have you learned about Troodon through your studies and research?
2: So there was some histology work. So that looked kind of at aging of the individuals, growth of individuals. It looks like Troodon was relatively quick to reach full size, maybe five years, but maybe it took a little bit longer to really finalize its growth. You know, it's sort of half-sized by year one, and nearly full-grown by year three, uh, mm-hmm. though though there are a few bits out there of some, here and there, there's some scattered bits of Troodons that suggest that there were some really big individuals, which puzzles me, <laughs> and then there was a whole a, a line of work involving the Troodon reproduction, so I feel like we have a pretty good understanding of Troodon reproduction because we have a nesting trace, we have egg clutches, we have good eggs, we have embryos well-preserved eggshell. So I feel from that we have a pretty good handle on, on Troodon reproduction. And then there was a bone bed that I worked on where there was an abundance of Troodon material, although I don't really understand exactly what that means. It's kind of interesting. anyway. Hmm.
1: So when you say a really large Troodon, how big is that?
2: Uh, typically, we say a Troodon is about 50 kilograms, so you know, somewhere around 125 pounds. Mm-hmm. But once in a while, there's there's, we have this one really big tibia that's, I don't really know weight-wise what that would equal, but it seems, I don't know, significantly larger, like like a, maybe twice the mass or wow. something like that. And there's there's a one bone at the University of Montana in their collections, and it seems really big. But the rest of it sort of seems to hover around the same size. So I don't know if that's a different taxa. Like maybe there's a different troodontid that's bigger, but we don't really have evidence for smaller individuals of it if that's the case. Hmm. Or maybe it's just exceptionally large individuals. Yeah, I'm not really sure what that
1: means. Cool. Is Troodon mostly known from Montana? So do you have access to a lot of the Troodon specimens, or is there a pretty large area where you find them?
2: There's some material from Alberta, so just across the border basically. Mm-hmm. And So here and in Alberta, there's, there's other material. There's teeth that have been described from as far north as Alaska and down in Mexico that are called Troodon that are kind of challenging to deal with in that one individual would have a variable set of teeth from front of the jaws to the back of the jaws. So it's hard to know if you have like a tooth, you know, does that represent a different species or is that within the variation that you find within Troodon? Hmm. So it gets called Troodon because you don't really have anything else to call it. There's some material from Utah that was described as talus, Is the genus. Pretty similar to Troodon as well, though. too. So, yes, bottom line is most of the material comes from Montana and southern Alberta.
1: Okay. There are a lot of them, right? I think I see a fair number of Troodon finds.
2: Not, not really. I mean, we don't, for some reason, it seems like there's good cranial elements in Alberta. They have some good brain cases in Alberta, and we have better post cranial stuff in Montana. But there's not really a complete skeleton for Troodon. I mean, the most complete skeleton is a small juvenile from Montana.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that could be problematic when you're trying to figure out what the maximum size is. Uh-huh. So it's much rarer
2: than, you know, T-Rexes. In my view, there's tons of T-Rexes. You know, there's several really good skulls of T-Rex and you can't say the same for Troodon. Hmm.
1: Is that because it might have been more like prey sized or why do you think that is?
2: I think there's a bias against smaller taxa is probably one one aspect of it. So is that what you mean by prey size, that people consume it? Yeah. Yeah. So that's part of it. It probably is a predatory animal. So probably in in terms of population, it's probably not an abundant animal as well. You know, as opposed to say a myasauro or some other duckbill or ceratopsian or something like that, that there might be, you know, many more in a given ecosystem than troodon.
1: Yeah. So we were actually at the uh, Museum of the Rockies two months ago, uh-huh. And we saw your Erictodromius or well, I say your Eryctodromeus because I think you were probably the paleontologist who might have had the most input on what it looked like, the display. Uh-huh. Um, what do you think Eryctodromeus might have been digging for? Do you think it just dug for, like, making a house? Or do you think they might have dug for other things?
2: Um, you know, it's pretty fleet of foot. It has pretty long, gracile hind limbs. You know, it's kind of, I guess in my mind, you know, built like a coyote or, a, you know, a Patagonian cavy, a mara. It's kind of a weird rodent in South America that's kind of long-legged, hmm. but also digs dens. So, I mean, if you saw it, you would say, oh, that looks like somewhere between like a miniature antelope and a jackrabbit. It's a fast-moving, running animal, but it digs dens. So I think I think a Rictodromius is kind of like that. I think it, it's just denning underground, but not... I don't think it's feeding underground. But, you know, maybe they're
1: important for reproduction. Hmm. Would that just be for like display or what do you think?
2: No, I just mean like a, a shelter away from predators. Oh, gotcha. So, like a place, you know, just a safe haven for offspring. I don't know, eggling, live birth. I don't know <laughs> uh, what it's doing in there. But, but I guess I feel like it's probably a safe shelter.
1: So, the one that they found, it was just in its own burrow, it didn't have any young or anything with it.
2: No, there were two parts of two juveniles with it.
1: Oh, okay, but we don't know if there were eggshells.
2: No, no eggshells that we found, no. I mean, they're, f- they're fairly good-sized individuals, so they'd, they'd have been out of the egg for quite some time, you know, like months.
0: Interesting. This is the only burrowing dinosaur we know about, right?
2: Bob Bakker described a small ornithischian dinosaur that he said he thought came from burrows about 10 or 12 years ago. But it's a small ornithician as well. He thought that it might be burrowing just because of the nature of the, he didn't have a burrow structure, but he had these assemblages of small individuals together, and he thought that was a way to explain them.
1: Oh, interesting.
2: So he he suggested that for that animal. He didn't really go into much details about, about it taphonomically, or like I said, there was no trace to go with it. Uh, and, I, you know, it's interesting. I, I feel like there's now rumors, I can't really say, of other dinosaurs that potentially might have been burrows.
0: Yeah, it would make sense that there is more than one kind that did that.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, we yeah. see a lot of modern animals do it for sure, especially smaller ones that need a little extra defense.
2: Right, and it's also worthwhile to get out of whatever environmental conditions, whether it's the heat of the day or the cool of the night. You know, it might be useful to have a shelter just to spend those bad times in. Oh, that's true.
0: Yeah. Probably just feel safer too. Mm-hmm. You know, no one else can get in.
1: Yeah. yeah. Speaking of reproduction, I haven't really heard anybody talk about potential live births of dinosaurs. Is that something you think might be possible?
2: Uh, um, you know, we don't, I guess we don't really have any good evidence in the sense that we haven't ever found A large skeleton with young inside and I think that given all the research that's been done on dinosaurs that That if live birth was out there, we'd probably find one of those eventually But we do we do lack eggs for large numbers of dinosaurs Hmm. So we have fairly diverse set of dinosaur eggs But when you look at them in detail, they mostly fall out with sericean dinosaurs So, we have, you know, we have Oviraptor eggs and we have Troodontid eggs and we have eggs for other small theropods. We have eggs for sauropods, but we have no eggs for armored dinosaurs. We have no eggs for horned dinosaurs, you know. So, those are two big groups. And then, ornithopods, we have eggs for hadrosaurs, but not any of the basal ornithopods. So, there's some big chunks of the dinosaur tree where we don't have eggs. I'm not sure what that means. Does it mean that they had soft shelled eggs or they're nesting in a in a way that doesn't preserve the eggs or they destroy the eggs. So they have soft-shelled eggs. Once you have soft-shelled eggs, there's sort of the potential to have no eggs at all, I guess. Yeah. So that's what you find among lizards. You know, you can find, like, among lizards, live birth evolves multiple times. And in closely related taxa, there can be one that lays eggs, usually soft-shelled eggs, and then another taxa that has live birth.
1: Would there be any big advantages to having live birth compared with laying an egg?
2: I guess some of it is that if you have live birth, potentially you you are protecting the eggs throughout the incubation period, as opposed to, you know, digging a hole and laying your eggs and then leaving them there. that are subjected to environmental conditions, to scavengers, things like that, that might come by and raid the eggs. But if you have the eggs internally, then they're protected through that period.
0: Interesting. I was just thinking about how like with penguins and it's such an ordeal for them Uh because they have to with their egg and they have to was it the father penguin can't even eat for months at a time because they're busy protecting the egg and then
1: yeah that's a good point in more extreme environments it could be more helpful it
2: seems just crazy it's like they spend the winter standing on an egg in the coldest part of the world yeah just just starving to death (laughs) yeah uh, yeah it's like not even the summer down there it's the winter it's like uh, it seems ridiculous yeah
1: they could really go for a live birth evolution
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah i guess that would facilitate things what you'd think if they had the internal at least they could swim around in the water be a lot warmer and they
1: could feed yeah, yeah. they could eat rather than just slowly starving to death for months yeah yeah so you mentioned there are lots of different types of dinosaur eggs, and I was looking one day at all the different kinds of eggs that have been classified into the different types, and it seems like dinosaur eggs account for a lot of the diversity of different types of eggs that we've discovered in animals. Why do you think there are so many different structures and shapes and things going on with dinosaur eggs? I don't know. I, I
2: think that's a really good question, and I agree that I think of dinosaur eggs as you know more diverse in size, shape, and microstructure, and eggshell ornamentation, than than we have in modern egg layers. So it's really weird. I think that there's so much diversity. It could be sort of like a World War One plane analogy. I don't know. That's who? If you ever look at World War One planes, there's like single-wing planes. There's biplanes. There's triplanes. There's even like quad planes. <laughs> like there's like weird. You know, they have engines in front. They have engines in the back. They do all sorts of things. And then by the time you get to World War II or later on, like, the plane diversity drops. Do you know what I mean? It's sort of like... Yeah. There's, like, a more standard plane format. So I don't know if it's, like, sort of a trial, you know, like, there's just seeing what works, or and eventually there's some aspects that get pruned from it, or I don't, I don't really know if there's a really a good explanation as to why some of the different morphologies work, you know, mm-hmm. relative to other ones. Are Because it doesn't seem... In a lot of cases, it seems like, well, they're just burying the eggs in the ground for, you know, this wide diversity of eggs. It's like they're still ultimately just kind of buried in the ground. So I don't really see what they're doing functionally that's different.
1: Oh, interesting. So even with all those different structures, a lot of them are treated the same.
2: Yeah. I mean, there's some diversity when you get into the manoraptor and theropods, like oviraptors and troodons. Then they kind of do some different things. But the rest of them seem like they're just sort of buried eggs. Hmm. So I don't really know I know I think it's a good puzzle and it's one of those challenging puzzles because you know You can't say oh what well, matches this modern taxa? It's like oh these are just weird <laughs> and they're dinosaurs. and They're just doing weird things And so it's hard to know how to interpret them.
1: Yeah, so is it harder with eggs to kind of extrapolate back? Using modern taxa than it is with other things like say, you know lengths of limbs and things like that Are there not a lot of modern analogies?
2: Uh, there's some general tendencies like porosity among modern animals. Low porosity eggs are those that are laid in an exposed nest, like a bird nest typically. Mm-hmm. And high porosity eggs are buried in, in sediment or vegetation. I think one advantage that eggs have is that you can think of an egg clutch as really a nesting trace. Yeah. That is that the animal arranged, you know, presumably if you're looking at a clutch that hasn't been modified after after it's been buried, but it's kind of hard to imagine how it could be modified too much after it's buried. But presumably, it's how that animal arranged those eggs in the ground. So there's some functional aspect that's preserved in in that arrangement. And so I think they're kind of interesting that way, both from how the clutch might have functioned, but also thinking about, you know, how how the dinosaur dug the hole and then placed those eggs in that arrangement. It's kind of an interesting puzzle too.
1: Yeah, because you have some very large dinosaurs laying relatively small eggs into a hole.
2: Yeah. And some of them, a lot of them are arranged in a single layer, not, you know, like a crocodile or a turtle digs a hole and they kind of just sort of empty all the eggs into their, that space and they're kind of piled on top of one another. But a lot, of, a lot of dinosaur eggs are more arranged where it's like, you know, you take six eggs and you, you know, dig a hole and lay them all flat in that hole, not pile on top of one another and then bury them. And that seems, yeah, it seems hard. It's like, how does a sauropod do that? I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, it'd be interesting to watch.
1: Yeah, especially because one of their eggs is so small compared to their body. Yeah. Even just compared to like a single foot on a sauropod.
2: Yeah. So, yeah, so they nudge them around with their heads or pick them up in their mouth. or Yeah, I don't know if it's an answerable question, but it's kind of interesting to ponder.
1: Yeah. Definitely. And you, I think, had published, I think you were on this paper, about how sometimes they bury... Compost or things like that to kind of regulate the temperature of the eggs while they're buried.
2: uh No, that wasn't me. Oh. <laughs> uh, um, I think Jack Horner talked about vegetation. It, you know, vegetation doesn't really preserve well with eggs. The two are kind of opposed. You know, the one rotting vegetation produces acidic conditions. Hmm. Acidic conditions dissolve away eggshell. We don't have much evidence of vegetation with dinosaur eggs, and that. It doesn't necessarily mean that they didn't use it, but maybe it's, you know, we're seeing the eggs that are preserved without it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It could be a preservational bias that we're sort of seeing eggs where animals didn't use vegetation.
1: Yeah. Are there any modern animals that bury their eggs like how dinosaurs do?
2: In like a single layer? Yeah. There are desert tortoises
1: kind of do that, they sort of arrange their
2: eggs in you know, a on a flat surface rather than piling. They don't lay very many eggs. It's only like four or six or something like that. Hmm. As opposed to like a sea turtle that, you know, lays a hundred eggs okay. all piled on top of one another.
1: But dinosaurs are kind of more in that number, right? It's usually like eight or so.
2: Some yeah, some are relatively small. Some of the sword pod nests down in South America, I think, have had twenty or maybe even thirty eggs. Wow. That's a lot. <laughs>
0: And those did those all belong to one?
2: Well, there's some debate. You know, it's from a waka where they have tons of clutches, and some of the clutches may be superimposed on top of one another. Mm. But I mean, they're really big. You know, they're multiple multiple ton animals. So really, the the mass of all those eggs is not very much, really, relative to the to the mass of the adult. Mm.
1: And then you said some of them eventually did evolve open nesting behavior and that might have some kind of evolutionary advantage, right?
2: Yeah, so so oviraptors and troodontids appear to have, you know, some contact between the adult and the eggs within the clutch. Maybe there's less so in oviraptors and then more more contact in troodontids. Oh, interesting. So it's a debatable point, but I, I guess I think that that means that they're providing heat to the eggs and incubating them with body heat. Or at least in part with body heat. Hmm.
1: That's interesting. You say troodons had more contact, considering when I think of an oviraptor, one of the main things I think of is that brooding kind of mother that was found. <laughs>
2: yeah. But, you know, the adult sort of sits with its feet, you know, it's kind of like a donut arrangement of the eggs. Mm-hmm. And the eggs are arranged in usually three levels. So there's sort of eggs on top of eggs on top of eggs mm-hmm. in a donut like ring arrangement. With The adult's feet are within the, the center, and then the animal's kind of draped on top of the upper level of the egg. So really, you know, those lower-level eggs, their one end is kind of exposed in the donut hole. But for the most part, they're, they're buried in sediment. Hmm. They're not really fully exposed. I mean, can you imagine – I mean, I guess you could argue that that's just how they got buried. But I, I can't imagine that you could preserve them otherwise – you know, basically, if you're stacking cylinders on top of cylinders, to me, they have to be buried when the animal's sitting on them. I can't imagine that you could arrange Coke cans, you know, <laughs> in a three-level derangement without sediment packing it in. So I think, I think they're fairly, fairly buried. And, and the porosity of the eggs is, is consistent with that interpretation, too. Hmm. So the actual amount of contact between the adult and an individual
1: egg is not very much, really. But Troodon had a slightly different nest?
2: Yeah, Troodon, like like after, has, has these elongate eggs. But Troodon eggs are planted more upright in the ground. Hmm. And so they're kind of more compact in their arrangement. And so the upper parts are all exposed, but in a tight configuration where the, where the belly of the animal presumably could sort of rest on top of all of those egg tops all at the same time. Interesting. And then some of that may get carried over into some of the enantiornithine birds. So some of the birds of the Mesozoic have also upright arrangements of their eggs.
0: I wonder, I was just thinking about like the thickness of the eggshell and how careful you would have to be and how much weight you could put onto them.
2: Yeah, trodon eggs are not particularly thick. It's about about a millimeter thick. Mm-hmm. But I mean, trodon's not, it's not a giant, you know, it's 125 pounds or something like that, maybe so it's not a really super heavy animal. Yeah. You know, ostriches are 300 pounds, uh, and emus and rias, you know, they're sort of in the, in the
1: Troodon range-ish.
0: That's true. I guess I'm thinking if I sat on an egg.
1: <laughs> a chicken egg?
0: <laughs> a chicken egg. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I could still or, easily break it.
1: <laughs> chicken eggs are a lot thinner, though. Oh, yeah. A lot of their weight is on their, on their legs, even when they're sitting, kind of on their metatarsals.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, and then they, you can sort of ease your body mass onto... <laughs>
1: The egg clutch.
0: Okay, yeah, I see. That makes sense.
1: So it's not really like sitting on it; it's more just like touching it.
2: Yeah, I think it, you. The animal could sit down, but as it's sitting down, its weight is really on its legs until until it and then it can kind of adjust how much weight is on the the egg clutch. Hmm. I don't know. I sort of feel like oh, I probably need to watch videos of nesting emus or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, that could be interesting. I don't think I've ever seen other than like a chicken or a songbird or something, much about the nest. Like I don't even think I've ever seen an ostrich nest. But they just lay ostriches just lay one egg at a time, right?
2: Well they have they have big clutches though, but they lay one egg at a time, yeah. Oh I mean, okay.
1: all, all birds lay one egg at a time,
2: right? Even if they have a big clutch, they're producing eggs one per day. An ostrich usually takes
1: three to five days between between eggs. Mm. So with burying the eggs, you would have to have an open area and then kind of hang around it for a week or two while you laid eggs before you could rebury it.
2: So, yeah, I mean, I guess that, that would be the case if that was true. I don't, you know, primitively animals lay eggs in mass like crocodilians and most reptiles and stuff. So I, I guess I would presume that most dinosaurs would, would be laying their eggs in mass, that they would lay all their eggs at the same time. And then it's only when you get into maniraptorans where we get this iterative laying and that's really where you get a really big jump in egg size relative to adult size. So like an oviraptor egg is about the same size as a myasauro egg. But, you know, a myasauro is, you know, two tons. And an oviraptor is, you know, 200 pounds or something or, or you know, 150 pounds. So the egg is substantially larger for the oviraptor. So at manoraptorins where we see a lot of changes in, in reproduction. And there's changes in egg shape. The eggs become really big relative to the adult body size. And that's where we start to get this egg pairing, which is kind of how we inferred the, the, the iterative lane of eggs. What is egg pairing? So eggs in over-after egg clutches are arranged in pairs. And same thing in Troodon egg clutches. Hmm. It's kind of hard. You can't always see it in, in every egg clutch, but the, in good clutches, you can see this egg pairing. So from that, we propose that that Troodon and over-after egg were laying eggs, like basically had reproductive tracts that were functioning like a bird. So they, were, they were producing eggshell microstructure like a bird and they were laying eggs, you know, two at a time. So one from each ovary and oviduct. You know, say so they lay, lay two eggs on one day and then lay two eggs on a subsequent day. And then about 10 years later, they found an oviraptor that had two eggs internal. So that was sort of supportive evidence that that, that was probably the case.
1: Yeah, that's a good find. <laughs>
2: So I don't, so, I guess I don't really know whether other dinosaurs outside of maniraptors were laying eggs, you know, one at a time or two at a time. There's no real evidence to argue that they were, hmm. and so I think the the safest assumption is that they were probably producing their eggs in mass. But I guess I would say we don't really have strong evidence one way or the other.
1: Yeah, I think the burying thing seems pretty difficult if you're laying them one at a time, though. Right, mm-hmm.
2: but I mean, overraptors presumably are building this complex. And Trodon building this weird complex of eggs where eggs are being laid two at a time. So that's kind of a puzzle to think about as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Lots of good puzzles.
1: <laughs> so, Sabrina and I were just in uh, the Two Medicine Dinosaur Center and we did one of their daily dig things. And we went uh-huh. out to a nest and Sabrina found some eggshell fragments and they were all very, very small. Is that a typical thing, or do you ever find a nice, intact egg that just looks like an egg was buried and then turned into a rock?
2: I would say in the two medicine, it's pretty typical to find bits of eggshell. I mean, eggshell is fairly common in the formation, but to find good eggs is pretty uncommon. Most of the time, they're being laid in mudstones, and those mudstones have been compacted, so the eggs just kind of been flattened into, you know, a, a pancake of eggshell. Hmm. But eggs laid in, in sandstones have more potential. The sand is just harder to compact, so the eggs tend to retain their three-dimensional shape. So a lot of the eggs from China are in coarser-grained sediments. And then in the, in the two medicine, a lot of the troodon eggs are laid in these sediments that have been infused with calcium carbonate later on. And so they've been cemented pretty early on in, in their burial process, so the eggs haven't been compacted too much. And those retain Pretty good three-dimensional shape as well. Cool. I was probably at that site actually this summer.
1: Nice. Because
2: <laughs> um, Dave Trexler, yeah, I visited with Dave Trexler and we kind of, he visited our site and then I went out there with, with he, he and another guy out to his site. Oh, cool.
1: Yeah, I saw you did some work at the two medicine. We just interviewed Dave Trexler when we were there too. He's a cool guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you also did some work reidentifying an embryonic remain within an egg. So was that one uh-huh. pretty well preserved? And how do you, what kind of conditions do you need to get an embryo still inside the egg?
2: Ossification, so bone formation in embryos, actually takes place pretty late in development. So you really have to get an egg that's buried, you know, buried more than it's supposed to be, um, <laughs> pretty late in its, in its history. So there, I feel like it's almost surprisingly that we don't have more embryos though. So i I don't know if there's something about the chemistry of the the rotting of the internal parts of the egg that helps to break down bone. I'm kind of surprised that we don't have more embryos. But we don't have very many.
1: Yeah, because to me it seemed like if you had an egg and the egg was preserved well, that whatever was in the egg would be preserved well. But I guess, like you say, maybe it's too acidic or something or other and then that makes the bones not stick around. Although if it was acidic, then the egg probably wouldn't be there either.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I don't... I don't really know how that internal environment works. But you can think though if the egg if it takes 100 days for the egg to develop, if it dies in the first 75 days, you're not going to see an embryo because it's not it's not going to have an ossified skeleton. So it's really that last quarter of development that you might, you know, see the
1: bones. Okay.
2: So so it, it really kind of has to be a late stage embryo before you see good bones. So you really kind of, you know, it's a fairly narrow window in that development. But you think for the, you know, like the thousands of eggs that come out of China, that we'd have more embryos. Mm. That's true. But, it, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's, you know, if you get that far along, the odds of you surviving are better than if you don't, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like if you're that close to hatching, that there's a high likelihood that you're going to make it all the way rather than die, you know, 10 days short of hatching. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. It's probably not equal percentages of, uh, whatever life expectancy i guess you'd call it
2: yeah i don't know how that works (laughs) i don't don't know there's probably maybe you could get numbers from modern animals i don't know that would provide some insight there
1: i don't know Hmm. possibly a more difficult question i was trying to find what the largest dinosaur egg is and i found many sources saying there are titanosaur eggs that are basically giant spheres and then I found other sources saying there's an Oviraptorosaur in China that has a completely different shaped egg that's very long and skinny, like you were saying, Coke can type shape, but also very big. What do you think the largest dinosaur egg would be from?
2: Yeah, I think, I think the, two, the two largest ones are their Hippacrosaurus eggs from southern Alberta and northern Montana that are big round eggs are sort of soccer ball in dimensions hmm. some of the possible sauropod eggs from south america might be that size but i don't think they are quite that big i think they're a bit smaller and then the other one are yeah these giant over eggs the the name for the egg is macro and some of them are quite long they're 50 centimeters long they're kind of like big zucchini <laughs> shapes You know, they're long and skinny, but their volume is kind of comparable with the, with the Hippacrosaurs. I think they're both up around four, four liters, maybe four and a half liters in volume. Wow.
1: Yeah, that's a big egg. Yeah.
2: But you know, it's still not as big as like the elephant
1: bird. Wow. Especially considering elephant birds themselves were not even close to a sauropod. Yeah. Yeah. And then do we know what... So we have the name for the egg, but we're not really sure which oviraptor it came from. The big ones? Yeah. Uh,
2: you know, yeah. I mean, I've, they match in microstructure and ornamentation and shape other smaller eggs that are associated with oviraptors. And there's there is a paper coming out. Darla Zelenitsky is writing a paper, I think with Phil Curry, describing one of the embryos from some of these big, the macro eggs. But I don't know if it's, I don't know if there's a giant Oviraptor from that formation that's been named. I mean, there's basically only been one giant Oviraptor that's been named. Mm-hmm. But these big eggs, you know, there's big eggs that are from Korea, from Mongolia, from China, and from Montana as well, Idaho and Montana. We find them in more places than we find giant Oviraptor <laughs> skeletal remains. So mm-hmm. presumably there's giant Oviraptors running around laying these eggs, but we just don't know more about, you know,
1: who it is that's laid those eggs.
2: Hmm.
0: That's really cool to think about.
1: Yeah. That seems strange that there would be eggs but not skeletal remains.
2: Yeah. I mean, it, it's kind of interesting when you look at the egg, egg, or, the, you know, it's often an eggshell record. It, it often doesn't match the skeletal record. I mean, that's kind of the problem in misidentification, right? That, you know, people went to the flaming cliffs of Mongolia and they found, you know, oh, they found 101 protoceratops from tiny little animals to big full adults and they found all these eggs so they just sort of assume well there's lots of eggs and there's lots of protoceratops they should go together right and that's why they called the first over that they found on top of eggs they you know call it the egg stealer but mm-hmm. so that they you know the numbers of eggs don't typically match the numbers in the skeletons. so this these formations that we've been working in eastern idaho and southern montana that's where we find a so, a is the most common dinosaur that we find, and then the second most abundant stuff that we find is eggshell, and most of it is this mackerel, along to lithus, this these giant eggs. So, we, but we haven't found, you know, one bone yet for a giant oviraptor. Although there are some giant oviraptor bones that people have, are kind of working on in, in Utah from similar age stuff. Cool. So, I, I had one student—that's the student that was Jade Simon. She was working on the the lithus eggs from. From those formations, and she always kind of joked that *Richtodromius* might turn out to be like the dinosaur kiwi, (laughs) (laughs) like that these eggs might be coming from. She, that was all tongue in cheek. She didn't mean that seriously. Sure. (laughs) But but you know, given if you took sort of like what the record looked like at face value, you said, "Well, we got lots of this small little dinosaur. and We got lots of these eggs, and kind of like, oh, you know, so it must be laying these giant eggs." (laughs) Anyway, that's funny.
0: Well, thanks so much for taking the time and speaking with us today.
2: Yeah, thanks for your interest.
0: Just wanted to say thank you again to Dr. Dave. We had a really great talk, and we always love talking to paleontologists, so it's good to hear more about his work.
1: Yeah, and clear up some of the things that we didn't know about or weren't sure about too was fun. Mm -hmm. I especially like the idea of dinosaurs possibly giving live birth. Yeah. And it'd be fun to see that. Somewhere along the way.
0: It would, definitely. So thank you again.
1: Before we get into the dinosaur of the day, we have another word from our sponsor, Audible, who is offering a free audiobook download with a 30-day free trial. I just finished another book last night, which was another murder mystery from the Harry Bosch series by Michael Connelly, and so I immediately downloaded the next one in the series. I'm on the 21st book (laughs) in the series. (laughs) That's how many of these audiobooks I've listened to. So, I'll have to expand my horizons within the next few months when I finish the remaining five or six in the series and I'm all caught up. He's still writing new ones, so I'll be going back eventually, but it's not at a rate of 20 a year, so I'm definitely going to catch up soon. It's been fun listening to them, starting from book one, which was written in the 90s, and they all take place in the present, so. The author was giving a lot of detailed explanation about photographic faxes because they were the state of the art <laughs> and then eventually electronic mail. And he always went into a ton of detail about how the technology worked and everything, which was pretty funny listening to, you know, these amazing fax machines and electronic mail. In in the more current books, he's texting pictures to his daughter. So we're finally catching up with some new technology. So I've had a lot of fun with that series and our children's book What Happened to Brontosaurus is also on Audible and you can get it for free using our promo code if you want to download a free audiobook today you can go to audibletrial.com/inodino again that's audibletrial.com/inodino for your free audiobook and once you're there you can either search for our book or you can search for any other book that you're interested in basically every audiobook that i've seen has been on Audible, and they have a lot of audiobooks that you can't find anywhere else. So if there's ever a time when I can't find an audiobook anywhere and I check Audible, it's almost always there. So definitely give them a shot if you're interested in audiobooks.
0: Yep, lots of selection there. So now on to the dinosaur of the day, Raptorex, and that name means Thief King. It's a dubious Tyrannosaur genus, and the type species is Raptorex Krigsteini, and the species name is in honor of Roman Krigstein, a Holocaust survivor. His son Henry donated the specimen to the University of Chicago to be studied. Raptorex was described in 2009 by Paul Serrano and others in the paper Tyrannosaurid Skeletal Design First Evolved at Small Body Size. There was also a paper published in 2011 called Reanalysis of Raptorex Krigsteini, a Juvenile Tyrannosaurid Dinosaur from Mongolia. So Raptorx is considered by many to be a gnomum dubium because tyrannosaurids tend to change a lot while growing, and there's no adult skeleton to compare it to. It looks similar to a juvenile tarbosaurus. Also, it was originally thought to be from the Yixian Formation in China and about 125 million years old, but now that's thought to be unlikely. And this specimen was collected illegally and smuggled out of Asia. So Pete Larson, who tried to figure out the origins of the specimen, said that an American businessman bought it from a Mongolian fossil dealer, then sold it at the Tucson Gem, Mineral, and Fossil Show. And Dr. Henry Krigstein, a fossil collector, bought it. At the time, it was described as a juvenile tarbosaurus. And he told paleontologist Paul Sereno about it, who said that it was a subadult of a new species from the Yixian formation. And Sereno published a description arranged to send the fossil back to China, where he thought it had been smuggled from. And Sereno also said that it was about six years old and nearly an adult. If this is true, it would mean that tyrannosaurs started as small animals with a large head, long legs, and two-fingered hands instead of evolving into giants with those features. But previous evidence found that primitive tyrannosaurs had small skulls and long arms with three fingers on each hand. In 2010, Pete Larson looked into the fossil and said that it was probably a juvenile tarbosaurus and probably didn't come from the Isshian formation, which Sereno had concluded based on this fish fossil that was found alongside it. And Larson said that it may have come from Mongolia instead for formations that were only 70 million years old. And he also said that they needed, quote, a more detailed analysis of the fossil matrix, including dating any pollen associated with the fossil. Sereno, however, said that he still believed in his original analysis. In June 2011, a detailed second study was published in PLOS One by Denver Fowler, Pete Larson, and others, and they found that the specimen was only three years old instead of six years old, and that the fossil that Sereno used to date Raptorex, which was this fish fossil, it was of Lycoptera, was actually bigger than any known Lycoptera and was probably part of an Elimictheiform fish, which lived during the entire Cretaceous period, so it's unclear how old exactly this Raptorex fossil is. Fowler and Larson and others said that Raptorex was probably a juvenile Tyrannosaurid, similar to Tarbosaurus, though it's unclear what genera it belongs to exactly until more is known about Tyrannosaurid growth patterns as well as more information about how old the Raptorex fossil actually is. And if this conclusion is true, then Cerno's hypothesis that Tyrannosaurid features were in smaller versions of Tyrannosaurus first would not be true. In twenty thirteen, Newbury and others said that the fish fossil, formerly thought to be Lycoptera, that was found near Raptorex was actually a heodontid, probably similar to ones found in the Nemect Formation in Mongolia, which lived in the late Cretaceous. And this is because the species found near Raptorx match with the species only known from the Nemect Formation. So this means that Raptorx probably came from the Nemect Formation and lived in the late Cretaceous. In 2011, Takanobo Tsuhichi wrote an in-depth description of a nearly complete juvenile Tarbosaurus, which helped to compare other juvenile Tyrannosaurids, including Raptorex, and they found that Raptorex and the juvenile Tarbosaurus had some differences, such as Raptorex not having a prominent crest on its upper hip. And this would mean that Raptorex is its own genus, but Fowler, Larson, and others don't all agree on whether or not Raptorex has that crest on its hip, and Larson wrote that there is a quote-unquote subtle crest. Still, the idea that Tyrannosaurids evolved their traits at a smaller size seems to remain in doubt. So, Ravdorex was about 9.8 feet or 3 meters long and weighed 143 pounds or 65 kilograms. It had a large skull, long legs, so it was a fast runner, and two fingered forelimbs, and it also had a large brain and a good sense of smell.
1: Yeah, this whole case is a good example of why smuggling can cause big problems because we really don't know where it came from because. If you're smuggling a fossil out of somewhere, you're not going to give a detailed account of exactly where you found it. Because, for one thing, you might want to go back there and smuggle more stuff out of it. And for another thing, it's just evidence that can get used against you and you might get caught and all that. So.
0: Yeah. Although it is interesting, it was originally labeled as a juvenile Tarbosaurus.
1: Yeah, and it might have come full circle back to a juvenile Tarbosaurus. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to say whether it's distinct enough to be its own genus. And it's especially hard to tell when you can't tell what rock it came out of. So you can't do your research on the sediment it came from to try to figure out the exact age. Because if we knew it came from the exact same time as Tarbosaurus in place, that's obviously a big clue. Whereas if it came from 50 million years earlier in a totally different place. So, yeah, don't smuggle fossils. <laughs> Or buy stolen fossils.
0: You don't necessarily always know it was stolen.
1: If it's a Tarbosaurus, it's stolen.
0: Not everyone knows that.
1: I know. I'm just saying. And our fun fact of the day comes from that Dreadnoughtus video that Sabrina wasn't too scared of, where Dr. Ken Lacavera is showing Dreadnoughtus on the scale compared to other animals and things that I liked so much, and he shows that Dreadnoughtus weighed less than a Boeing 737 despite weighing as much as nine T-Rexes or 12 full-grown male African elephants. I think that he might be using the upper end of the weight estimate. We talked about the whole convex hull thing a while ago and how weight estimates can vary pretty wildly depending on what technique you use. But it's still pretty crazy that it weighed so many times more than these T-Rexes and not as much as something that we have built that can fly
0: (laughs) and that wraps up this episode of i know dino thanks for listening and again if you want to help us get to our goal so we can send out stickers we just got two new patrons this week so that's pretty exciting then please check out our patreon page at patreon.com slash i know dino we would also settle for a review on itunes until next time Thank you for listening to I Know Dino. If you have any questions or comments about dinosaurs,
2: we'd like to hear from you at plesiosaur at INODINo.com. And for more information on dinosaurs, go to iknowdino.com. Or follow us on Google, Facebook, Tumblr, or Twitter at iknowdino.